welcome back to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined as always by Chris Bouguet. How you doing, Chris? I'm great, Rachel. I'm so happy to be here today. We have uh, the pleasure of being joined with Lucas Stuver. How are you? I am so good to be back. I, this is exciting. It's, it's wonderful to see your smiling faces after a little hiatus there and hope to stick around for a bit. Lucas, what have you been up to? <laughs> <laughs> lots and lots of work. So uh, as you all, I started a new position with Toby Dynamox like nine months ago. And um, despite my best efforts, I guess I, I, I guess I did a good job because they promoted me. So I've been busy and busy and busier. So uh, it's been real tough to connect just because of travel. But um, this is one of the things that I do that I really, really love. I think it's very important. And um, I love connecting with my dear friends, uh, Rachel and Chris. So I am here now and I will be here as much as possible moving forward. Well, we are happy to see you. Um, and we're also really excited about today's episode because we are doing an entire episode dedicated to listener questions. So we're going to be going through our very long list. I hope we have enough time to get to them all. We're eventually going to get to them all. Uh, I just don't know how much time we'll need. Uh, but we're really excited to answer your guys' questions because we really value that you guys are reaching out to us. And I think that we're going to have some really vibrant discussions uh, surrounding a lot of the questions you guys have asked. People have been submitting questions via email and on the Facebook page and on Instagram. And so we've been collecting all those in a Google Doc. Plan here, right, is to just kind of read each question and talk about them. And we'll get to as many as we possibly can. So keep the questions coming. We'll try and keep organizing the same way. Yeah, absolutely. So Chris, I know the first one came from your inbox. Um, do you want to dive right in? Sure. So this is from Patrick. And Patrick wrote and he said, I've been hearing about this argument for a while and I appreciate hearing your guys' engagement with it sometime. And he links to a blog post called No More More. Uh, and he says, happy year. Congrats on getting to 100 reviews. So the blog post is by Tracy Vale and Heather Forbes. And the crux of, without reading the entire blog post, the crux to the blog post is essentially, should you be teaching more first or later? And they make the case, I think, that, you know, of course, it's a word that you want to teach. It's just when should you teach it? And this kind of ties into a, a larger question of, when do you teach core words? Should you start with uh, with some fringe vocabulary and then move into core words later? Or do you start with core words and then you move into uh, fringe vocabulary? And wh what's the sequence that's that's appropriate for, for teaching vocabulary? So I think this is a really interesting discussion. And there's one thing in the article that I really liked. Um, they say clinical decisions like choosing first words should not be made randomly or based on practitioner preference. And I couldn't agree more. Um, I think the problem, though, is that there's no one-size-fits-all approach, right? Um, so we're kind of saying, oh, well, you know, we shouldn't do this or we should do this. And I think it really just depends. Um, you know, I understand the idea of core words not always being the most powerful to start with because I think sometimes kids don't grasp core words right away. Um, and I've talked about this multiple times on the podcast, but I really believe that sometimes fringe is really, it's really great to start with because kids are really motivated by it. They get all the thing, they get access to all the things that they want really quickly. And when we're starting, you know, the initial stages of introducing children to AAC, I think that that's really powerful. Having that high level of motivation, it really solidifies, I think, for kids. But we don't want to get stuck there, right? So I think that constantly modeling core words is something that's really important. But I've also, you know, introduce core words right away with some children and they grasp it immediately. Um, so I think it's hard to have this blanket recommendation um, one way or the other. Um, it's, it's quite a polarizing topic, but I don't know. What do you guys think? 
Well, here's what I think. I think there is sort of a general rule that we can follow here that, that is sort of works for everybody, which is the 80-20 rule. So if you were to if you were to uh, look at our typical speech, uh, typical developing language, you find that you have 80% of what we say is core vocabulary and 20% of what we say is fringe vocabulary. So what if we just taught it at that ratio, you know, where it's not an either or. Well, you, gotta te- you, you have to pick one word to teach and that's it. I mean, you're modeling language all day long, so just model it with that ratio. That, that's my thought of how to, how to how to approach it. Yeah, I mean, this all makes a lot of sense. What's interesting about this conversation is it actually hits on a pretty big debate in the field right now about the relative importance of fringe and core words for emerging communicators specifically, right? And this is sort of typified by these camps that, uh, you know, on the one hand, you have sort of this Janice Light uh, leading the piece, and on the other hand, you have Karen Erickson leading the piece. And I really don't mean to frame that as a war in any sense, but certainly there are two different schools of thought. And one of the points, and it's, it's echoed in this blog article, is the idea that... Um, that more is an easy word to say. It's easy to sign. Um, it's, it's functionally useful across many domains. But one problem with words that have that sort of broad functional utility is that they're both context dependent and dependent on the knowledge of the interlocutor, right? A good example I always have of this is my niece, um, who started to say, she started to say share a lot when she was like three years old, like she would say share all the time. And so she'd walk up to you and just say share. And we thought this was very polite until we realized that share for her was code for give me what you have. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I want this because I've seen this modeled as when nice people say this, they get something. And so it's hard to determine whether they actually have like a, you know, high level functional understanding of what that word means or if it's just been modeled enough with this sort of, you know, honestly response to stimulus sort of component. And I don't know the answer, but I do know that based on what Chris is saying, I mean, looking at just adult speech being 80-20, it does make sense that that's what we would be modeling. So I'm going to throw a wrench in because that's what what we do in these discussions, right? (laughs) Um, So I have multiple cases that I've worked with who, you know, I try my hardest to do the 80-20 rule because I agree. I think that that's what we should be aiming for because we know core words are the glue that hold sentences together. You can't only have fringe because it's mostly nouns and very specific. So it's really, really important to prioritize core words, which we know. But I've had kids that I start modeling core words and they're just, they're not totally grasping it. Um, and it just feels like there's something amiss. Um, so for Kids who are having challenges with core words, do we shift the percentage? Do we do more, you know, heavier on the fringe words until they start becoming more independent communicators and then shift a core? I see Chris Bouquet shaking his head. (laughs) Tell me what you're thinking, Chris. I'm shaking my head no, right? And because here's what I'm guessing, Rachel, is that when you're seeing that, you're seeing it in isolation in a a speech setting. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And my thought here is that there's not enough modeling happening, not that we're modeling the wrong things. So uh, the question becomes, hmm, who else can we get to model? How else can we get to more, uh, more hits, if you will, more, more exposures to the words that we are trying to teach the students? So my thought there is it's a matter of quantity, not quality. Yeah, this is like arguing what protein is best for a child that won't mm. eat, right? Yeah, hmm. which is bacon. Bacon is what's best. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to – I mean, yeah. but it is a very interesting point. I mean, there's, we have to weigh so many different considerations in this, and more is one of those things that's um, you know, so universally functional that I think people go to it all the time, even just in terms of like adapted science before they even get to AAC. But at the same time, like I, when I'm building a system out for somebody, it's absolutely 80% or perhaps even more going to be focused on core words initially, you know, with some, some fringe components and individually motivating components mixed in so that they're interested in the device initially. But we have to keep in mind, too, that one of the big points, if not the big goal of core words is growing towards, uh, you know, eventual literacy, you know, stringing these things together, getting past that MOU of one or two. And so if we're just using them as code for a whole bunch of other things, I'm not sure it accomplishes that goal. 
Yeah, I think that that doesn't matter what the word is. Like, again, what you were saying about uh, the student that comes up and says, share, 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 you don't know what that means. It's too general, but it'd be the same thing that would be the problem if the student came up and said, dinosaur, dinosaur, dinosaur. You, again, you'd be like, what, what? You know, it, it, it only works when you start to put the words together to make language. And so, therefore, we have to teach more than just one word. Right. Yep. That same student actually used to always say pray, and um, that was code for everybody be quiet. Because <laughs> 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 that was their expectation during prayer. So. Yeah, How creepy. Could have been hunting. Like, I'm hunting. You're my prey. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Good point. Oh, well, I think that at the end of the day, every case is different. And I think it's important to remember that. Focus on the, the language that we know will be the most powerful. Um, and I don't know. I feel like I, I, I can see kind of both sides of the coin, uh, especially because sometimes I am working. I, I mean, I'm currently working on cases where it's like we've been we've been working towards these goals and we're not seeing the progress that we want. And of course, my first question is, is there enough aid of language input and enough modeling happening? But then I also just I have some concerns about just kids with autism being able to understand more abstract language. Um, so it's kind of a balancing act for me between teaching those concepts, but also having success with the device. Because I also think if, you know, you're not having success with the device, it's, it's deflating to not only a child, but also to everyone working with the child. So I think that if we can have some quick and early success with fringe words, uh, that's something that we should prioritize, all while maintaining the long-term goals of core words and eventually literacy. Should we move on to our next question? Yeah. Okay, this one comes from Megan. After hearing so many little mentions on the podcast about getting siblings and peers involved, I got a bunch of these lamp core board placemats printed for some of our extended family. I gave a set to my nieces and nephews last week, and when I saw them again yesterday, they were super excited about trying to talk to me using the mats. It was awesome. And now my brother-in-law wants to bring the kids to our house this weekend to hang out with their cousins and see the actual apps in action. So keeping in mind that my kids are in the very earliest stages of using their respective systems, what are some of your best tips for bringing in cousins as conversation partners or modelers of aided language. Well, I think Megan did it. She made the placemats. That was one of the, 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 the bridges that brings the, that brought the peers together, right? So any sort of play activity like that where the boards are around or the systems are around uh, and everyone's just using them, that normalizes them and it makes it uh, just part of the environment. So uh, I think that's the first trick. I and mean, she, she did it. Yep. Yeah, which I like was really excited. First of all, if you haven't um, joined our Facebook group, you should definitely go on there because you can see Megan's post and she posted uh, the, the placemats. And it was really... Really, it was really wonderful to see that. And I gave some feedback on the post about having going in with a plan. Because I think a lot of times, you know, we take for granted that we're speech language pathologists and we can kind of, you know, go into a situation and start modeling language and doing all these things that come very intuitively to us. But if you're a parent or you're not a speech language pathologist with that training, um, I think it does help to go into a situation with a plan. So having a target word or two that you want to work on, um, you know, showing the kids how to use it, showing the kids what that looks like, um, and obviously having a really motivating activity. Um, so I think having a plan before you do something like that um, just makes it, if you think through it a little bit more, it makes it, um, it solidifies the, the process a little bit more. Um, so that's definitely one recommendation that I think would be good. Right. You can also do things like household games, like simple games, even shoots and ladders or Uno or stuff like that, where the rest of the uh, family can participate, but be modeling what's happening during the game uh, using core words really easily, um, which I think is something that's great. Um, if you have access to other tablets, I mean, obviously not every house has this, but certainly in the schools you might. I also really like getting peers uh, like, a, like a free trial, non-speaking copy of the same app so that they can then play with it and have it in the classroom, maybe even do some programming of their own, um, you know, learn how the things work. 
Um, I have never failed to see kids get really excited when they get involved in the creation of the communication tool. Yeah, you know, I'm going to brag on my daughter here for a second. So my daughter is in fifth grade, and one of the things that she's doing in her fifth grade classroom is to do what's called uh, Genius Hour. And so she can study anything she wants and put a presentation together that she shares with her entire class. And so one of the things that she was kind of passionate about is we have a tool that we use in our school district called uh, Read and Write, Read and Write for Google Chrome. It doesn't have anything to do with AAC necessarily, but she's in a a general fifth grade classroom, and and it helps... uh, when you have the app installed or the extension installed, you can hit the little play button and reads text aloud. It gives you word prediction and that kind of stuff, you know? And she uses it all the time. She wants her friends to use it. So she did a whole presentation on how to install the extension and how to use it for her class. That's what she did for her genius hour. And I could totally see these cousins and siblings doing that exact same sort of approach. Let me go into whatever, whatever grade I am and do a training for all the other kids in the school about AAC, about how I'm using these apps, how I'm using the, the board. Hey, mom, can I make a board for all the kids in my class and bring it into everybody and get handed out and then talk about the, the words that are on there and try and make sentences and do the activity for, for the, just the general, general ed students to kind of raise awareness of AAC for everybody. But that will also go back to that student that is doing the, the session. They'll even own it more, right? They'll even have more responsibility and know where all the words are even more. And they'll want to carry it on. Absolutely. I was just in a preschool classroom last week uh, doing an assessment and these little preschoolers came up to me. There's a little little girl um, is not nonverbal, not talking. And the little preschoolers came up because I had an iPad. And of course, when you bring an iPad into a preschool classroom, all the kids are like, I want to play. <laughs> um, and so one of the little boys came up to me and I forget exactly what he said, but it was something to the effect of like, she doesn't talk. And I said, you are right, but we are bringing this iPad in so that she can have a voice and she can talk. Um, So I think it's really important to talk with kids about, you know, what is AAC? Like, why, why are we using this device? I think sometimes uh, I'll see kids, they'll try to like, you know, hop on the device and, and I, and I, and I've seen preschool teachers like, no, 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 like don't touch it. I'm like, no, no, like we can model on the device, assuming that the child is okay with that. I know some kids are very protective over their devices. Some kids won't let me model on their device. Uh, But assuming that's not the case, I think the more we can get peers engaged and modeling on the device, it's just amazing to see what peers can do. And there's nothing better than peer acceptance and anything we can do to facilitate peer acceptance for children in preschool classrooms and in high school classrooms, you know, we should be working towards that because I think at the end of the day, not only, you know, does it foster a better sense of community, but it also just, it's, it's more effective, you know, therapeutically. Um, Children are more excited to communicate when they have peer models Um, and it's just, it's more successful. So I'm really excited about this question because I think it just, it reiterates what we know using siblings, using peers as modelers is really effective. All right. You ready for the next question? I'm ready. All right. This one is not really a question. It is more of a kudos, but it's from Samantha. And Samantha says, hi, hosts of Talking With Tech. I just wanted to reach out and say thank you so much for doing an episode on CVI, cortical visual impairment, and spreading awareness. CVI is currently the leading cause of blindness. So the chances of teachers and therapists running into a student with CVI is drastically increasing. I'm a teacher of the visually impaired and just transitioned to an assistive technology specialist. And much of that revolves around AAC and a variety of tech to help her access the world around them. 
I came across your podcast from an SLP I work with, and she raved about this episode because the two of us have been tackling communication for CBI kiddos for years now. Thanks for doing this episode and getting the word out about CBI. I'll be sharing it with others I work with as sometimes information is best understood from a different perspective or person. I couldn't agree more, Samantha. A colleague of mine, Sally Norton Dar, well, we used to say you can't be a prophet in your own land, so you got to hear it from someplace else. You might be saying the same thing as, as you would, but you got to sometimes bring someone else in to say it. And so that can be our voice for you then. Fantastic. Um, this inspired a question to me um, because this is actually something I've been, um, that's been on my radar the last couple months because um, I've been working with some students with CBI. And I'm wondering, what are some of the red flags? So say you're working with a student and you're thinking, hmm, like there feels like something's off visually. You know, what are some red flags for you that you need to recommend a vision assessment? Some of the big ones for me have been like students that don't want to attend to an advice, like say a student that's been using a, a, big, a two-step Big Mac switch for a long time, right? But they suddenly don't want to attend to a device, but they will attend to like felt boards and things like that in the school, um, you know, when there's obviously no cognitive or behavioral reason why they wouldn't want to work with the device, but they're refusing to. That's something that I've always brought in a vision specialist for. Um, that being said, I, I just got to say, in my experience, clinically, CBI has been tough. And um, even putting on the other hat as a as a device maker now and a software developer, CVI is still tough. Like we need to do a much better job, um, of, you know, of working with that population. And so I appreciate this ongoing feedback, and I love that you guys got kudos about it because I think we have a long way to go. Yeah, you know, Rachel, I think I talked about this during the, the that episode, and I made the banter for that episode. But the, one of the students that I was working with that made us think CVI was exactly what Lucas was saying. There's here we have this bright screen, and he's reaching out and kind of hitting it with his knuckles, as opposed to uh, kind of targeting or isolating anything on the screen. But when we give him visuals, he would reach out and kind of grasp the visual and, and like crush it in his hand, you know. Um, and he, meaning he could target it more more readily than um, than just the bright screen. And so that made us think, hmm, what's going on? here with his vision and that's when we brought the teacher of the visually impaired in and we started chatting about that yeah something you just said to maybe reflect on something what you said i think the the person that does this every day can't be the leader or something like that what, what was it you can't be a prophet in your own land People. yeah yeah i i had somebody recently tell me um in in the public schools they, they've said that saying that i always heard of you know in in the land of the blind the one-eyed man is king and, and my response to that is actually in the land of the blind, the one I can't, man is a really crappy ruler because he doesn't understand the needs of his constituents, right? Yes. So <laughs> we need to be listening to the people that need this stuff. So some other things that have been coming up for me since, like I said, the last couple of months, this has been on my radar even more than normal. Just trying things with black backgrounds and children who are very interested in yellow, red. Um, I think that those are all kind of red flags for, for CBI and Project Core actually has amazing resources for high contrast vocabulary sets. Um, they also have, I don't know what, what I would call this, um, 3D objects, essentially. You can, if you can, if you have access to a 3D printer, you can print out these um, high contrast, I think single color objects, um, yeah. which is really, really interesting. Like tactile ease. Tactile, yep. Are, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, the best use I ever saw of that was there was a classroom where I saw somebody could earn computer time. And when they earned it, they were given one of the old AOL discs. Do you remember these where you get spammed with them, thousands of them in like the mid-90s? They oh, yeah. finally found their purpose. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But no, truthfully, 3D printing opening up a whole new world for this too. This one comes from Jenny. So this next question comes from Jenny. Um, so she says, the school district director has suggested to me for homeschooling, my questions that I'd like you to address on your show, um, steps to follow when homeschooling using AAC, options in AAC curriculum to consider in order to have an educated decision, and tips to combine dynamic assessment when performing the tests that are required by law. 
So this is a really interesting question about homeschooling in AAC. Can, can we just unpack for a moment that the, the district director is encouraging her to homeschool? Oh my gosh, Lucas, I was about to say the exact same thing. Like, what the heck, dude? Why are you, why are you saying that you should be homeschooling? It's like, yeah, we can't handle your child. Is basically. Yeah, we cannot meet the mandated legal needs of your child. So therefore, so there's an issue there to begin with. Therefore, you should homeschool, not even like private school or go someplace else, which is, uh, here's another school that might be a better fit. It's like, you should just do this at home. That's uh, it's shocking to me. Yeah. Well, so it's illegal. So then let's move on. Um, I mean, the rest of this is a whole other one that could be another episode, right? Like steps to fall when homeschooling, options for AAC curriculum to consider. I mean, this is an area that needs a lot of improvement. I will at least throw out on the table, um, you know, unique learning from news to you. There's uh, board banker activities to go from board banker. There's um, some stuff also. The, the AAC language lab from PRC. Yep. So there's at least there's three that I can think of off the top of my head. There's, you know, there's the, always the risk of going the TPT route, which can be 90% wonderful and 10%. Oh my gosh. Wait, what's TPT? Teachers pay teachers. Excuse me. Oh, gotcha. Right. Cause you don't, you, you, you don't know what you're getting there necessarily. I mean, you do, you know what you're paying for, but there's another one called the tell me curriculum, which yes. is Carol's. Oh, right. Right. I was like, it was on my brain and I was like, what is it called? I have it. I have the book in my closet. <laughs> That's a really good uh, one. But all of those, I mean, those I think are maybe tent poles that you'd hang your instruction around. I, I don't see necessarily homeschooling any different than I would see classroom instruction in that uh, you might still pick words that you want to teach. You would try and focus instruction around teaching those words and then the words that are associated with those words, you know? So like you might pick, I'm going to teach the word turn, right? And so you do lessons uh, and activities centered around where you would model the word turn for the student and then give them opportunities to say the word turn. And that's not to say you'd only practice the word turn, but when you're thinking of what the activities or our lessons would be, you'd be thinking, okay, how am I going to teach the word turn today? Okay, I, well, let's see. We're going to be sitting at breakfast and uh, it's, it's, it's my turn to set the table. And, but, you know, that's one of the, the big, the nice parts about that core vocabulary is it's so flexible that you can use it all day long. So, but the idea is the same, is you, you think about the words you want to teach and then generate the strategies and the activities around those words. And right. I think- Kind of what you're saying is a, a core word of the week might be a really good strategy to implement. I think that at the end of the day, like you said, it's it's not really different, right? You know, it's it's really just being strategic about the language that you're targeting, um, making sure you're obviously targeting those core words, um, but also just being really flexible as things come up, adding vocabulary to the device um, to support the curriculum that you know you're using um, and things like that. But the most important thing is integrating into those routines that you already have in place. We don't want to, you know, make this huge additional burden feeling like, oh my gosh, I have to do all these things now. No, you just have to weave language into the things that you're already doing. Um, And so I think when you think about it from that perspective, it is less daunting and um, just takes a little bit of extra planning. But, you know, as you start doing that and start going through that, um, it becomes a lot easier over time. Right. And that is also just to, I guess, point hit on point C here. There's a question about combining dynamic assessment with performing the tests that are required by law. I mean, targeting a word a week is actually a great way to gather data along the way around acquisition of that one target word. As far as the tests that are required by law, um, to loop around to the beginning, that is absolutely not responsibility, your responsibility. I mean, if your district is encouraging you or asking you to homeschool, they are absolutely still on the hook to be competing, uh, completing the standardized assessments. Oftentimes, what's being assessed is not the vocabulary. So, for instance, if it was a math concept, you know, there right. you might be teaching one more, bringing it back to question number one, you know, one more, one more, and as you're adding things or putting things into, a, um, a, you know, ad, doing that, that additive property, uh, and that's what you're assessing is their math knowledge, but you're still working on the vocabulary because the, the, the assessments seem sort of artificial in some, in, in some regard to, and secondary to the instruction. 
Absolutely. All right. The next one is from Becca. And Becca says, hello, I recently found your podcast and they are simply amazing. In several of the podcasts that I have listened to, you mentioned that you would provide references to the research you cited. Where would I find those citations? I looked online and in the descriptions of the blog posts, but I did not find them. Thanks. Well, Becca, the answer to your question is we try and put the, if we mention a research article, if we mention some sort of resource at all, whether it's research or not, we do try and put that in the show notes. There should be links to the show notes. Now, that's not saying we, we might have missed something here and there, but uh, that's what we try and do. It should be in the show notes, which is over at bit.ly slash TWT podcast bit.ly slash TWT podcast. If you haven't seen any of those um, specific research pieces, please do reach out to us. We'd be happy to provide them. The next question comes from Denise. Hello, does one size fit all in AAC? Whether it does or it doesn't, we often have to make it work. The truth is that many students come to us with apps and devices that didn't have the assessments or thought behind the implementation. The students have never gained proficiency, but they have a general knowledge of the system. What to do, start over or just provide more and better support of the system they're already familiar with? As a new AT in a district of 30,000 students, my background is much like yours in Chris Bouguet's. I inherited so many students who were just given Proloquo to go with no training of the teachers, SLPs, or family. At this point, anything but Proloquo is a hard sell because no one is at all familiar with LAMP or POD. I think the approach you described makes a lot of sense. It's the implementation piece that makes or breaks a student's success. So I think what, what she's referring to here, this must be the Eric Enger episode where we talked about the specific language system first approach, which is the idea that you might move AAC from being a tier three support, tier three being uh, only something only certain individuals get to a tier one support where you say, you know, everybody gets this and we're going to use the same system for everybody as a starting point and then shift from there. When we know that system doesn't make sense for student A or student B, it could still be a tier three support. We might be looking at something different, but maybe we, we pick one system that works for most, not all, but for most, and shift from there. I think that's what she's getting at here. Do you think that she's talking about? Yes, I absolutely think that's what she is discussing. And actually, it goes in combination with another question um, that I got, or I guess um, kind of some food for thought. Someone shared a picture with me. Um, this is a visual that says, when everyone in your school district gets the same core board, that is an assumption that those core words are useful and appropriate for everyone at all times. That is not individualized instruction, nor has this assumption been verified empirically. So this is a, a hot topic, you know, because we know we know how it is, it's important to individualize a child system um, and making sure that we think about all the specific features that they need to be successful. Um, but like we already mentioned, it's really important to prioritize implementation in a lot of ways. Um, you know, we know that a child can have the best system in the world, but if it's not implemented correctly and the circle of support doesn't have the necessary training, it's not going to be used, right? So right. It's, it's, it's this balancing act. Um, I think that we were really, we're sometimes really heavy on the assessment side and we kind of drop a device in a student's lap and um, don't give them the support, the ongoing support that they need. Um, so I think if we're thinking about using a specific system you know, at least like the pros of that is everybody knows the system, right? Um, and that's really, really important because these systems sometimes take a long time to learn. And if everyone's familiar with a system that works for most kids, just from a, you know, systematic standpoint, it feels like that's really, that's really valuable. I mean, it's just so tough because yes, we know over and over again from research that the training of the circle of support, whether that's educators or caregivers or family is the biggest predictor of success. And by success in this case, I really mean adoption uh, more than anything of AAC. And so there's a, a compelling argument that if you're in a school district where you don't have the bandwidth to train on anything but the one system, for example, that trying to spread yourself thin and train on a whole bunch is going to lead to suboptimal outcomes for everybody. 
At the same time, I could enroll myself in an immersion Esperanto school for the first 18 years of my life and be the best Esperanto speaker that ever lived and then walk into Safeway and try to buy groceries and be completely functionless, right? It's, it's interesting because if you look at the generation like before high-tech AAC, right, like there were these many schools of thoughts that were largely oriented around language systems and functional use of language. So we had MinSpeak or Unity, we had, uh, you know, we had Pod, we had X, and there really wasn't a lot of um, debate around the, the sort of long-term potential of those things, but probably with the exception of MinSpeak. Really, it was more about like, okay, how do we make these folks functional in a classroom environment and then like early adulthood? And once we've entered into this world where we have all these you know, different schools of thought that are enabled by this renaissance in technology we've had with multi-touch devices and with eye gaze and everything else, a lot of the development focus has shifted away, shifted away from the technology and more onto the language systems. Um, I personally believe that there are absolutely systems that are far superior to others that set people up a lot better in the long run. However, um, even in a situation where I see that a student has been using something that's necessarily you know, not the right fit for them, but they've been using it for three years and all of their staff is trained to use it very well, I'm not going to advocate for a change necessarily in that situation, right? I mean, there's just too much already invested there. The, whole, the concept of actually mandating a, a single approach first thing, though, really does still grate on me as much as we talked about it. So, Chris, take it away. Well, okay. The way, the way I think I'm going to answer this question is to break down Denise's question a little bit more succinctly. So the first thing she writes is, does one size fit all in AAC? Question mark. And the answer there is, I've never heard anyone anywhere ever say that it does. No one is even asking that question. Like, does one size fit all in AAC? I think everyone to a T would agree that there is no one size fits all. But the question that I'll keep asking over and over and over again is, is there one size fits most? Uh, could it be that, yes, you could pick one, one or two of the most prevalent systems, sort of like you were saying, Lucas, that there, there are some systems that you can look at uh, through history that have been good matches for a lot of people because there's a lot of people using those systems. You, know, you don't need research to show you. You can just look at the actual users and say, hey, well, how did you do it? What are you, what are you using? That same system seems to work well for you. And so... So you don't even need the research, you just look at the actual people. The next thing she says here is, in, in her case, students have never gained proficiency, but they have a general knowledge of the system. What to do? Start over or just provide more and better support of the system they are familiar with? Well, again, this, this gets to that question is, uh, Lucas, again, I think you, you make such a good point here. If someone has had a system that might not be optimal for them, but they've had it for three years and everyone around them knows, knows it, then maybe it is optimal for them. Meaning, what about it would make it suboptimal? What is it that we're looking at? Go, yeah, this is not a good fit for you, but we're going to stick it out. I wish we could turn back time three years ago and pick something different. Um, what specific criteria we're we looking at that made it suboptimal for them or made, made us looking at it currently now say, you know, this, this is not the right fit for you. Um, or, or then also when is, when is the time for a transition, right? Like I have a simple base user right now who just runs right over to the predictive keyboard every single time, you know, I mean, maybe we should be switching that out. Yeah. So I, I know a student just like that, that it was, uh, we tried to introduce symbols to her and she went right over to the predictive keyboard and she uses that predominantly. And I, I try and tell her, you know, you could be faster if you learn to use the symbols and she doesn't care. Right. And, and in these cases, it's her choice. You know, someday she might make the, the, the shift. I, I make the same analogy to like teaching someone how to say an R, you know, uh, look, dude, it's your choice. If you want to learn the R, I'm going to give you all the strategies and tips, but really you're the one who's going to have to make, do the effort to make your R differently. And maybe someday it'll become important to you and you'll make it, or maybe it won't. And that's fine too. And that's the same concept I think about with her, her AAC system is that, yeah, you know, if, if you want to keep using the predict, the predictive keyboard, fine. But if you want to try and be faster, uh, I'm, I'm here to help you. And we're all here to help you because it's your choice. But back to the whole idea of, 
of um, a, a system that we'd apply to to most people. I'm going to call upon the set framework here. So I've mentioned the set framework in previous podcasts, and it's the idea that um, in order to come up with the tool that you want to use, you look at or that you should use, you look at uh, all the things you would think about for the, uh, what a student might need, at the S in the set framework. And then you look at the E, which is the environment. And that environment includes like the, the physical stuff that's in the environment, but it also includes the people. And that's the part that, that the last T is in the set framework is the tasks. And then I guess the final T is you use the student and the environment and the tasks to develop the tools, uh, what tool you want to put in place. But the, 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 the reason I bring that up is to talk about that E which is the environment and the people in the environment. And again, uh, Rachel, you put it so nicely that if people aren't going to use the tools that you're trying to teach them, then what good is it? You know. So if you can get everybody on board with one tool and then shift from there, I think you just have a greater chance of success, let alone uh, minimizing the disruption when transitions happen, which I think is another big issue. Well, and the other thing to think about is at some level, I think that a lot of us are kind of adopting a specific language first approach anyway. Um, you know, there's so many systems out there. If I already feel more comfortable with a certain device, I'm more likely to recommend it, right? Um, I think that there's so many different apps out there and a lot of them are very great and are very robust. Um, and so we, we are naturally already kind of going to use or recommend or trial ones that we feel familiar with. And so I think it's just like not feeling the sense of guilt. I feel like I yes, yes. feel this like guilt that, oh my gosh, like I need to know all the apps. And if I don't know all of the options out there with all of the features, um, you know, that I'm, I'm somehow deficient as an AAC specialist. Um, I'm somehow deficient in the evaluation process. And I just feel like we don't need that guilt. There's so many robust systems out there that can be so effective. Um, you know, yes, there are specific features for specific systems that might really, really benefit a, a specific child. But at the end of the day, I think that we just need to be a little, uh, a little kinder to ourselves. Um, and I think that one of the reasons that Eric Enger episode is one of our most popular. And I think it's because the specialists and, you know, the clinicians that were listening were kind of like, thank goodness somebody said this, you know, like, thank goodness, like they took all the pressure off me to know all these systems and all these features. Um, so I think that there's a, there's a whole other element of well, we can't know all the things, right? Like I dedicate an hour every single week to professional development. So I'm looking into new apps and new features and I'm trying to stay up to date on all the technology. But the reality is technology evolves so quickly, more rapidly than we're able to keep up with it. So I think we need to focus on what we do know, which is implementation strategies. And that will get us a lot more bang for our buck. Yeah, Rachel, I think that's a great way to put it. You know, I really think that for years, that, that guilt that you're talking about, now we're shining a light on it, you know, and saying, you know, what, it's okay that you don't know it all. And it's okay that there's, there's what, over 300 different communication apps and you're supposed to know every feature of every one. Maybe you know a few well that work for the vast majority. And if you're stumped with a case, feel free to refer out to someone else. That's what the, this podcast is about and these questions and, and the Facebook group. People can, and other Facebook groups, like we had uh, Christine Bowden on talking about AAC for the SLP. These are great places to refer out and, and get more information. Let me add this other thing too. I think there's a lot of people who do evaluations who might be proponents of, no, I must do an evaluation to determine the best app for this student. And, and they are still only looking maybe at three apps. Exactly. Like they're not looking at all 300. So they're doing a, a mini form of the specific language system first approach, you know, uh, but coaching it in the, or under the guise that, that I do know them all, you know. 
Yeah. And I think that I I hope that our listeners out there are finding solace in the fact that, you know, we're sitting here talking and we don't have all the answers, right? Like, I don't know all the apps. Um, And I'll be the first to say that to clients. You know, a lot of times clients will come to me and they'll say, oh, I've heard of this app or this app, or what do you think about this? And, you know, I'll say, listen, I can learn any app, any communication app. I am qualified to, you know, take a deep dive in and figure out how it works. And if it's a robust system. Um, But what I do know is how to support language with AAC users. Um, And that's the most important thing. And I think a lot of times I I get a lot of emails from clinicians who are really interested in AAC and they want to start specializing in AAC and they want to start doing AAC assessments and all these things, but they're holding themselves back because they feel like they don't know all the answers. They don't know all the apps. They don't have enough experience with all the different kinds. Well, the only way you're going to get that experience is by actually doing it. And so when I was first starting out, of course, I didn't know all the apps, but I would get a case and parents would say, we're we're using this specific app. Do you have experience? And I would say, listen, I have experience implementing AAC. And so that was where I would start. And I'd say, I can learn this app. And that's how I did it. You know, I just slowly but surely start having more experience with apps and you start learning more about them. Um, So I just think that it's really important to remember that you don't need to know all the things. You know, as long as you're actively trying to continue to learn and grow and you know the foundation concepts that can help implement any device, that's the most important thing. Yes. And you don't misrepresent what you don't know. You don't come up saying you know it when you don't. Then being honest about how you don't know it is an important part of being a professional. Absolutely. So we got through a bunch of questions here today, but uh, I think there's still many more to go and we can't fit them all into one episode. So what do you think about the idea of, of having a listener feedback episode part three, I guess, because this is our technically our second listener feedback episode, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Well, and we got through, I think, uh, eight of 23. So maybe we'll have a three out of four. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. You guys have a lot of questions and hopefully we have a lot of answers. Do keep them coming too. Absolutely. Yeah. So for Talking With Tech, my name is Chris Bouguet. I'm here with Lucas Stuber and Rachel Madel, and we'll talk to you next week. You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.